we're not friends after God's own heart uh, because uh, we're perfect. We're friends after God's own heart because uh, we cling close to Christ, uh, the Father's beloved. And so I want you to turn with me to a shocking passage. It's Second Samuel chapter 11. And even though I'm going to probably just be focusing on the first five verses, we're going to read the whole chapter. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and old Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said, said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are engaged in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field, and we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. 
The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father God, as we consider some of the serious things of life, we pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would quicken your word to our hearts. Give us fear of sin. Give us fear of you and uh, that we would tremble at your word, that we would also cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ and your grace, our need of your grace every day of our lives. We pray, Father, for uh, your spirit to be with us as we continue to respond to your word and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. True story. Jeremy Bassett uh, told a story from a few years ago when his uh, five-year-old niece, Olivia, was part of a church nativity play. And actually, the funny part of the story is not with Olivia. It's with uh, her best friend, uh, Claire. Claire was uh, representing the Virgin Mary. Olivia was an angel. And there was a little boy, five-year-old boy, who was wandering around the uh, place where they were dressing up and going to be doing their rehearsal. He was dressed up in a sheep's costume. And with obvious pride, he was going to everybody and saying, I'm a sheep. What are you? And he got up to Mary and said that. And Mary said, well, I'm the Virgin Mary. And he must have felt a little bit disconcerted uh, that he was up against, you know, the lead character here. But uh, he collected himself and he said, well, it's hard being a sheep, you know. And she said, well, it's hard being a virgin too, you know. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> Even though she was talking about playing the part of the Virgin Mary, the Bible does say that it is hard. And that's why the Bible does not simply admonish us to fight against this temptation. It calls us to flee from this temptation. Even mature, godly, pastor uh, Timothy was instructed by, by Paul to flee also youthful lusts. You flee from an enemy when you know it's tactically uh, going to be suicidal to uh, engage that enemy. You know you're going to, to lose. And there are some battles where a tactical retreat is by far the best option. Now, I think most of our young people do a fairly good job about staying as far away from temptation as uh, they, uh, they can. They know the dangers. And today I'm not going to be preaching so much to the young people as I am to you married folk. Now, obviously, this passage applies to all of us, men, women, and children. They're great principles in this passage. But it is critically important that we realize that the Scripture's admonitions with regard to this subject are just as much to the married people as they are uh, to... Uh, singles. In fact, Satan has the easiest time with those who think they don't have any problem in this department. It's an area that I personally am not tempted in uh, very much, but I know exactly what the Scripture says. It says, let him who thinks he stands 
take heed lest he fall. Now, I believe I can stand by God's grace, but you can bet your bottom dollar I take heed. I, the, the, the literal rendering is I watch out, okay? Watch out lest you fall. Even married people need to protect their hearts, their minds, their eyes, their emotions. They need to protect their bodies as well. And let me start with a modern story uh, of adultery. Uh, Gordon MacDonald was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He was also a pastor of a church. And he writes that he had been asked by a very close friend who was an accountability partner, uh, what were some of the key areas that he had struggles in? What were the weaknesses, weak areas uh, of temptation? And specifically, he asked which areas he thought that Satan could take him out on. Now, after thinking a bit, he responded this way. Well, all sorts of ways, I suppose. But I know there's one way that he wouldn't get me. What's that? He'd never get me in the area of my personal relationships. That's one place where I have no doubt that I'm as strong as you can get. A few years after that conversation, my world broke wide open. A chain of seemingly innocent choices became destructive, and it was my fault. Choice by choice by choice each easier to make, each becoming gradually darker. And then my world broke in the very area I had predicted I was safe, and my world had to be rebuilt. And he goes on in his book to quote from my utmost for his highest, saying, an unguarded strength is actually a double weakness. And I want you to consider that quote from Oswald Chambers this morning, because I think this first point is critical. An unguarded strength is actually a double weakness. Now, I'm mainly going to be addressing the men this morning and addressing the, the women next week because they tend to be tempted in a, a different way, even though I think everybody can benefit from the principles we're going to look at today. But I started with the story of McDonald's adultery because he was a model man, he was a model husband, he was a model pastor, he had written books on family life, and yet, Satan took him out in adultery. It was just shocking to everybody who knew him. And the reasons really are no mystery. They're exactly the same reasons that took David down in this chapter. They are common uh, to human nature. And if these reasons are present in your life, uh, you can fall just as easily as David fell. You might not think so. You can fall just as easily if you do not put hedges up uh, in your life. Uh, David actually tore down some hedges in his marriage because he didn't think he was vulnerable. And the first hedge that he tore down in his pride was that he no longer had his guard up. Now, when a boxer doesn't have his guard up, uh, what happens? He gets busted in the chops, right? He gets uh, punched right in the head. Now, so far, we have seen that David has, for the most part, been on a spiritual high, and the Lord has blessed him in so many ways. In 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel, the first few chapters, he's blessed him not only with kingship and victories, he's blessed him financially, he's blessed him uh, spiritually, people respect him. Uh, David was really on a, a high plane of success in almost every area of his life. Everything was going well for him, and he let down his guard. That was his first problem. He was forgetting the Christian maxim 
that there, but for the grace of God, go I. Okay, we all need the gospel daily. And in surveys all across America, this has been a repeated pattern. It's precisely been when people have felt invincible, that there's no way that they could fall, that Satan takes them out. And there's a tendency for us to just think, this is not an issue. Even among non-Christians, married men, for the most part, do not consider adultery to even be a possibility. A Gallup poll recently showed that only 5%, and I find this amazing, but only 5% of married men in America would consider adultery, and 11% of unmarried men. That's a pretty low figure in our adulterous generation. I guarantee you that more than 5% of married men and more than 11% of unmarried men uh, commit adultery. It's far, far more than that. The poll went on to say that 67% of married men didn't even think it was a theoretical possibility for them to fall into adultery. They just felt like they had it made. Why in the world would I do anything so stupid as that? Okay, it's naivete. 95% said they wouldn't drop their spouse for a trophy wife, even if they were wildly wealthy or successful. And yet far, far more people do so for far, far less. They have let down their guard. They don't see why they need to be careful. Over the past 20 years, I've known pastors who have told me to my face, sometimes with a little bit of hostility in their voice, that I'm being legalistic. Uh, It's just ridiculous that I set up the hedges that I do. For example, I refuse to counsel women alone. And it's not surprising to me that several of these pastors who have gotten in my case over the last 25 years have fallen into adultery, some of them with their secretary, some with counselees that they have counseled alone. And um, the statistics were even bad 26 years ago when I uh, first started pastoring. Uh, The 1988 survey of nearly 1,000 Protestant clergy by Christianity Today, they they have a magazine called Leadership Magazine that goes out to pastors, they found that 12% of those 1,000 pastors admitted that they had already committed adultery. 12%. That is just absolutely astonishing. Now, why am I harping on this first point so much? I'm harping on it because... We just don't think that this is anything that we would be prone to. We've got a great marriage. We've got great kids. Everything's going well for us. Why would I do anything so stupid as that? And uh, people don't think that they are prone to do that. But you can be as strong as David was in the last few chapters and as close to God as George MacDonald was and still fall if you let down your guard and do not cling close to Jesus. Satan's not going to quit fighting. It's just a fact of life. And this first point is a point that so many of my friends have argued with me on. They just don't believe it. And I really worry about men, or women for that matter, if this first point is not present and they are not on guard. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 warns us, Let him who thinks he stands... Take heed lest he fall. So if you ignore that verse, you're already vulnerable. I don't care how secure you feel, how satisfied you feel in your marriage. If that first point is present in your life, you are already vulnerable. The second point is a failure to take socially acceptable sins very seriously. And let me explain what I mean by that. 
in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, mentions that David took five more wives after he became king. That's when his polygamy started. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, it mentions more wives and concubines that he took after he came to Jerusalem. Now, we're repulsed by the idea of multiple wives and concubines. It's just not culturally acceptable uh, in in America. In fact, uh, uh, back then, uh, it was a culturally acceptable sin. Even though Deuteronomy 17.17 forbids uh, kings from doing exactly what David did here, people didn't think uh, that much about it. In fact, many people expected this is what kings do. Of course you're going to take. It's not prestigious. You've got to engage in treaties with other countries. It's a necessity of politics is the way that they thought about it. It was probably a sin that was on the same level as gossip, gluttony, unkind words, anxiety and pride today. They may have recognized that it was a sin. I think that they did. But it really wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, Now, some people today question whether polygamy really was a sin back then. And let me explain that it was. Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 says, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. That's exactly what was happening to David. Very, very subtly, his heart was turning away from dependence upon God precisely because of the polygamy and the concubines that he had taken on. But back to the point, that text says it was a sin. Jesus says it was a sin. In Genesis, he interprets Genesis 2 verse 25 as God's mandate of monogamy, that the two become uh, one. David Stern points out that the Hebrew word for betrothal, kiddushin, means to be sanctified or separate from all others. So the the very word to betroth means you're making a promise, you're going to be forever separated from all other women and to be devoted to this woman alone. So even the word betrothal implies monogamy. It was clearly, and there's other points I could give to show that it was a sin. Now here's the point. When we let down our guard on respectable sins, we harden our hearts to some degree. And if we harden our hearts to some degree, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And if we grieve the Holy Spirit, He stops convicting us of our sins. And if He stops convicting of us, us of our sins, then even socially unacceptable sins begin to be attractive to us, where they weren't at all before. But there's more to it than that. When we give in on any sin, there tends to be a feeding of the fires of our besetting sins. Our besetting sins are the ones that we really struggle with. Uh, I think this is perhaps the most significant point. Steve Gallagher, the president of Pure Life Ministries, um, uh, he was able to overcome unbelievable addiction to pornography. When you read his testimony and uh, other uh, Uh, sexual uh, addictions as well, and he now has a wonderful ministry to those who are sexual addicts. But he testifies to the fact that he could be sailing along with no temptations whatsoever, and if he gives in on some other area like gluttony, overeating on cookies or something like that, he weirdly finds those old sexual temptations beginning to rise up in his life. And there's two reasons for that. The first reason is that the roots 
of all of our sins are so intertwined in our hearts that they tend to feed each other. When you kill one area of sin, it tends to expand into sanctification in other areas of life. When you give in on one sin, it tends to feed the other sins. The second reason is that if we are measuring our righteousness before God, not in terms of what the Bible expects, but in terms of what other people are thinking, it's a social righteousness, then it becomes easier and easier to justify new sins based on what the culture thinks as well. So those are the two reasons uh, why, why David found it uh, very easy to justify this. All of the sins of this passage are things that kings routinely got away with in the ancient world. Third, he was shirking his responsibilities. Verse 1 says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, not all commentators agree with me on this particular point. Uh, but this seems to be worded in a way that is a rebuke to, 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 to David because it's God himself who says this is the time when kings go out to battle, but, but David remained at Jerusalem. Time for battle, not a time for remaining. And so I agree with Walter Chantry and with uh, other commentators who say that this was a shirking of responsibilities that directly fed into the sin that he's going to be describing in this chapter. And when we find ourselves habitually shirking our responsibilities, it's a danger signal. Uh, The reason it tends to feed the problem is that we usually shirk our responsibilities because, oh, man, I don't feel like doing that. We're we're being driven uh, by our feelings. And when feelings consistently drive our behavior, whoa, Satan gets out the hook, he gets out the bait because he sees a fish that wants to be caught. I mean, that immediately gets Satan's attention, the demon's attention. And there are many ways in which we can be driven by our feelings. And at the risk of getting somebody angry, I'm going to go from preaching to meddling and give you some examples. Uh, Hitting the snooze button repeatedly in the morning is probably not a good habit to develop. Now, I am not saying that if you're one of those people who always hits that snooze button in the morning, you're automatically set up for adultery. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is this is one of many areas in your life that if you beef up If you develop discipline in that and other areas of your life, you're setting up a hedge that can protect you. That's what I'm going to be uh, saying to you. And when people are prone to the sin of pornography, for example, I usually recommend that they highly structure their lives so that they plan their downtime. They plan their recreation and their snacks and their exercise, and then they make a habit of following through on their plans on their responsibilities as they have planned. It's just an aspect of the dominion mandate. Dominion mandate's the mandate in Genesis chapter 1, right? That we take dominion over all things, everything uh, in life. And if you don't take dominion of things, those things have a tendency to take dominion of you. It's one or the other. And if you really need more sleep every night, and it's just like, I'm exhausted in the morning, I have to hit that snooze button, here's what I would suggest that you do. I would suggest you say, you know, I'm going to be tired in the morning, I'm just going to set my alarm a half hour ahead. 
And uh, that way, I have to get out of bed because I'll be late for work if I don't, okay? That's probably a better way of doing it. Plan ahead of time that you're going to do that. I don't want you to be legalistic about this, okay? It's not any one thing that we're talking about. It's the amalgam of whether we are dominion creatures or not that we're, we're talking about this morning. And again, it's not an infallible hedge either, but it is helpful. The fourth way in which David was set up for a fall was that he was vegging out. Uh, the first part of verse 2 really doesn't clearly convey that because uh, in the New King James it says, then it happened one evening. Now, if you look in the Hebrew, you'll see that it's between noon and evening. And so Kyle and Delich in their commentary say that it happened, quote, after taking his midday rest. So let me give you some other uh, Bible version translations. One has afternoon. There's a paraphrase that says after his midday rest. Three translations have late one afternoon. That's the way the ESV has it. But it is somewhere, we're not told exactly where, between noon and evening. That's, that's the Hebrew. So what's going on here? <laughs> it's not that David is taking a 20-minute power nap so he can get his energies back up again, get back into work. Uh, that's not what's going on. It appears that David has nothing to do. He's bored. He takes a nap. He's tired of being in bed. He flips back the cover. He wonders, what do I do? He goes out and he's wandering around trying to figure out what he should be involved in. We call it vegging, okay? When you come home from work and you plop down in an easy chair and you start flipping through the channels, and I wonder if there's anything on here that's worth watching, uh, what you're probably doing is you're going to end up watching something that afterwards you say, you know, that really wasn't worth watching. But more than likely, you're going to stumble upon something just like David accidentally stumbled upon uh, his viewing of Bathsheba. That's likely what's going to happen. It's just another example of letting something else structure your life. In this case, it's the TV programmers who are structuring your life, trying to capture your imagination, instead of you structuring your TV watching. And you might wonder, what in the world does this have uh, to do with uh, David's temptation? Well, it's this. Almost every counselor of addicts, whether it's an addiction to cocaine or addiction to pornography or some kind of other addiction, almost every counselor of addicts will tell you vegging out gives those addicts more opportunity for lust to uh, be lured. Uh, many former porn addicts have testified they don't dare start vegging. The moment they start vegging, they find those old temptations starting to creep up in their lives. Now, it may not have that impact on everyone, but rather than vegging, it's probably better to carefully plan out your rests your pleasures, your TV watching, all of the other activities. And again, I'm wanting to emphasize it's not any one of these things. I mean, sometimes people just are exhausted and they veg. It's not any one of these things, but it's an amalgamation of them. Okay, verse 2 goes on to say, David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. He obviously has nothing better to do with his time. So here he is, mid-afternoon, he's bored. And if you're bored and looking for something to happen, hope that Satan doesn't get wind of it because he's likely to try to make something exciting happen for you. The old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop, 
uh, demonstrate that this is not something Phil Kaiser's come up with. They've recognized this for eons, uh, that uh, it's, it's during these times that the temptation uh, can be the strongest. I think Chuck Swindoll is absolutely correct when he says, our greatest battles don't usually come when we're working hard. They come when we have some leisure, when we've got time in our hands, when we're bored. I don't know how many times I have counseled people and their besetting sin that they fell into happened when they were bored. It happened as a result of, of, of boredom. Uh, there's really no excuse for a Christian to be bored. Uh, you can fill your time with planned out activities, including rest and recreation. Now, sometimes we say we're bored, really not. We're planning out something. But if you're called to be a dominion creature, you are called to have your day mapped out, not to be bored. When Satan sees people who are routinely bored, he's probably going to get his bait and his hook out thinking, ah, there's another fish that's just waiting to be caught. Uh, I think I'm going to have some opportunities in this person's life. The next problem was undisciplined eyes. Verse 2 goes on to say, And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, I've counted the number of times that the word very occurs in the Bible. I've got a computer program. It's 280 times. And that's not very many when you consider how many words there are in the Bible. The Bible's uh, measured. It's, um, it's uh, very calculated in how it uses that word very. And it's always when something is important, uh, when something amazing has happened. So the Bible is saying this woman was a knockout dame. I mean, she was incredible. She had a great figure. Uh, and probably had the, the lips and the hair and the face and the smile and all of the things that go along uh, with that. Now, if God himself describes her as very beautiful to behold, we cannot fault David for thinking so as well. Uh, that's really not the, the issue. He's just agreeing with God's evaluation. Of course she's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with appreciating beauty. That's not where I fault David. In fact, that is the place that Muslims put the fault, don't they? They want women to be covered up. Because if there's anything beautiful out there, I'm just going to infallibly fall. Now, that's a ridiculous concept. It's not biblical at all. What we can fault David for was the lingering nature of his look. And the first word in the Hebrew indicates that this was more than just a simple glance. The word saw can be translated as to inspect to inspect. It's a perfectly appropriate word. I think it's a wonderfully appropriate word for this particular temptation. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of a, a feel for the range of meaning in this term. This is the word that is used to describe prophets, a seer, because they are very carefully taking in all of the revelation that God is giving to them. Well, David was taking in all of the revelation this woman was giving to him. She was revealing herself, right? And so that's kind of the idea of that word, uh, saw. And uh, we'll look at what was going on in Bathsheba next week. But I think most women know when you men are, you just notice something. You look, you notice something, you move on, and there's no problem. Or when you are inspecting. It's a different kind of a look, and they know exactly uh, when you are doing this. And I've had to talk to men from time to time and point out to them, 
You know, you probably don't realize it, but uh, I've just noticed quite a number of times that you seem to have eyes that just rove all over a woman's body. Uh, You're inspecting those women. And a lot of times they were oblivious to it. In fact, they're usually just floored, dumbfounded, shocked, embarrassed (laughs) that I would even notice. And I say, look, I mean, this is something that is an issue with men. It's common to men. I'm just doing this because I love you and I care about you. And let me give you some homework that can help you to discipline your eyes so that you know where your eyes are at at any given time. Uh, You can discipline your eyes, but it's become such a habit for some of these men, they don't even know that they are doing it. I talked with one pastor one time. He had done this so many times, and I knew he was not aware that this was going on. And I said the same thing to him, and he said, no, that can't be possible. I just said, well, just put it in your mind and think about it. Well, he started noticing he was indeed doing this, and he was just floored by it, very embarrassed by it and uh, automatically started taking the actions that needed to be taken. And by the way, you can feel free to talk to me if you ever see me inspecting a woman's goods in this way, okay? Uh, You can talk to me. Uh, Drew Anderson had that happen to him, and he has said this publicly, so he does not mind at all that I'm sharing this with you, okay? But he said, while my wife and I were shopping at a mall kiosk, A shapely young woman in a short, form-fitting dress strolled by. My eyes followed her. Without looking up from the item she was examining, my wife asked, Was it worth the trouble you're in? (laughs) And he should be in trouble. Why should he be in trouble? Because he is deliberately breaking down one of the hedges that protect his marriage. Each of these points really are hedges that David was perhaps unwittingly tearing down. And uh, we're not talking here about appreciating beauty. It's obvious that the Scripture says that both the Bible and godly men appreciate the beauty of women. That's not the issue. But when, when that subtly turns into inspecting the goods of every attractive woman, you've got problems. And like Job who said... I have made a covenant with my eyes. We men need to make a covenant with our eyes so that we're very conscious about where our eyes are at at any given time of day. And I can give you advice on how to do that. In fact, I'm going to do that uh, in our next point. Now, I cannot claim that I have been perfect in this, but this has been a lifelong goal for me. And even when I'm an old, old man, I hope that I set a covenant with my eyes. Or as another passage says, I set a guard before my eyes uh, to be careful in what I look at. Now, the bottom line here is that the eye gate is the male's main problem. Females have a different issue. This is the male's main problems. One of the reasons why pornography is such an issue for men and why I recommend covenant eyes. It's just an area where you can be accountable uh, with some friend in this area of the eye gate. Do not downplay this. It's a critically important issue. And of course, the moment your eyes go from noticing to inspection mode or to taking in the revelation mode, whichever way you want to translate that word for saw, Uh, a switch gets turned on inside of your heart. Now, it may not seem like lust initially, even though 1 John says that it is the lust of the eyes. And by the way, there's a difference between the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. You can have the lust of the eyes before the lust of the flesh even rises up. But 
in order to communicate as clearly as I can this morning, instead of calling it the lust of the eyes, I'm going to call it curiosity because that's an element that the Scripture uh, talks about, and this is how men justify it over and over again. Hey, I'm just a curious guy. I like to know what's going on, and I saw that click, and I thought, wow, that's curious. What is that? When it's really not anything that you needed to know about. Okay, take a look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. He's asking questions about her. He wants to know about her. He's curious. You know, he thinks, what man wouldn't be curious? She's a neighbor. There's anything wrong knowing who your neighbors are? Just going to ask a few questions here, but curiosity has gotten more men into trouble than you can shake a stick at. And it may seem initially like such an innocent thing. I'm just curious. You know, it's not anything uh, sinful that I'm, I'm pursuing. You've probably all heard the expression, curiosity killed the cat. You guys are probably wondering, what is that cat doing in there? Well, that's curiosity killed the cat. What I'm telling you this morning is that we need to kill at least some forms of curiosity. Not all forms of curiosity, but at least some, the sinful ones that amount to the lust of the eyes. <coughs> Ecclesiastes 1, verse 8, <clears throat> says something very, very interesting. And by the way, as I read this, this can be describing a good thing or it can be describing a sinful thing, depending on the context. <clears throat> okay, it says, The eye never has enough of seeing. NIV. And you men need to be aware of that. Uh, this is a principle of life. <clears throat> the lust of the eyes, one lingering look is never going to satisfy the curiosity. That's why when men start watching porn... One look is not enough. It leads to more and more and more, deeper, deeper looking. So Scripture says the eye never has enough of seeing. By the way, you women need to be aware of this principle uh, as well. And the way in which you dress so that you don't cause men uh, to stumble. Some women, uh, you know, they know just how far to go in their dressing to arouse that curiosity in the other man and yet be without any fault. People can't uh, accuse them, but they're pushing the edges of sobriety. But anyway, I'm not preaching to you women today. I'm preaching to the men, so let's stick with the men uh, here. <clears throat> uh, what we need to do uh, is make sure... Well, let me, let me give you one more comment for the women. We'll, we'll turn around to the positive side. Women, the eye was designed by God to never have enough of seeing. So let your husbands look at you. And they think, they've seen me a million times. I mean, what's to look at? No, the eye never has enough of seeing. And some women don't like that. But this is the way God has made it, okay? So get over it. The eye has never had enough of seeing. But that can go in a godly way or it can go in a negative way, depending upon the context. Okay. Back to preaching to the men. Men, if your eyes tend to take in every woman on the sidewalk when you're driving down the road or take in every billboard or your eyes tend to take in every sign, especially those lingerie signs in the department store, there is a cure. Uh, and it takes uh, some work to discipline your eyes to look, to not look at every interesting sight, including a Ferrari or an oddly shaped tree or a huge pile of leaves. 
and I'm not giving these assignments because it's a sin to look at a Ferrari or an oddly shaped tree or a pile of leaves. I'm just saying these are exercises you can do to give yourself homework so that every day you're practicing to make sure your eyes are still in a disciplined state, okay? So let me give you some examples of how this would work. And, and believe me, when you first start doing this, you're going to find it much, much, much more difficult than you thought it would be. For example, you see, you're driving along, you see a Ferrari parked on the side of the road up there, and you're saying, okay, I'm going to practice being real disciplined, and you keep your eyes focused on the road ahead of you, and that Ferrari is only in the periphery of your vision. But boy, it is driving you crazy. You're just dying to see what that Ferrari looks like. So you're focused on the road, but you notice that in your consciousness, the road's not the center of your consciousness. That Ferrari is the center of your consciousness, and it's really hard not to look at that Ferrari. And you say, no, I'm going to be disciplined. So you drive all the way past it and say, I'm so disciplined. You look in the rearview mirror to see what that Ferrari looked like. <laughs> ah, I blew it. I was not disciplined. Okay, and it is hard initially to discipline yourself in this way, but what you're doing is you're testing your eyes. You're saying... Are my eyes willing to cooperate when I say no to curiosity at any given time? So um, it's not a sin, but it's a failure to be able to discipline your eyes. Even with the Ferraris, the eye never has enough of seeing. So you can start the discipline of your eyes by working on issues that aren't even necessarily sinful. What you're doing is you're taming your curiosity. Curiosity is a wonderful gift from God. It's a part of dominion but you're taming it. You're teaching your eyes discipline so that when the temptation comes along to undress a woman with your eyes, you say, no, I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to keep my eyes on her eyes, and if that's even distracting, I'm going to look elsewhere. But you discipline your eyes. <clears throat> now, that illustration with the Ferrari shows it's not enough just to discipline your eyes. You've got to discipline your mind too, right? Because you can be disciplined with your eyes and, wow, the periphery of your vision is just distracting you like crazy, right? And I'm not going to preach on it because it's not in the text. But one of the things that uh, you can do is learn the discipline of meditation. I wish it was in the text because I could really preach on this. But if you learn the discipline of meditation upon the Scripture, it's one of the most powerful means of transforming your mind. So if, if you don't know how to do this, talk to me and I can show you how to engage in disciplining your mind. But um, let's see, back to the text here. What David should have done when he was on that roof, and he happened to notice that, and there is this temptation to take a second glance as to say no to the curiosity. I mean, this would oddest thing. Uh, wouldn't anybody be curious? What in the world is that woman doing out there, uh, you know, bathing? Now, you're probably wondering the same thing. What was she doing? I'm not going to tell you until next week. Uh, but the curiosity wants to make you have a second look. But because you're so disciplined with your eyes, you say, no, I'm not going to satisfy my curiosity because in this case, it's not a legitimate curiosity to, uh, to, to establish. And then he should have said no to his curiosity. Who is that woman? I've never seen her before. And he should have said, it's none of my business. I'm not going to say uh, yes to my curiosity. 
Grace contained the principle of our eyes that is described in Ecclesiastes 1.8, and it becomes easier and easier the more that you practice it. And I believe this is what Job meant when he said, I've made a covenant with my eyes, and I've set a guard before my eyes. Uh, he was recognizing, first of all, that there is this black hole that tends to just never end. The eye is never satisfied. And he says, no, I'm going to say no to my eye because I know my eye gate can get me into trouble. Not all curiosity is legitimate. Like Eve's curiosity with the forbidden fruit, it was a curiosity that he should have just instantly slammed the door to and said no. Okay, the last hedge that David tore down under Roman numeral one, and these are the hedges that are under his control, was a failure to remind himself of God's guaranteed laws of harvest and the fact that this harvest always hurts. I'll just, I'm not going to go over all of those laws that you'll find in Galatians chapter 6, but we do need to drill into our consciousness. It doesn't matter what I plant, whether righteousness or whether I plant a sin, these six, maybe seven laws of harvest always come to pass. There are no exceptions. And if I have that drilled into my consciousness, it's going to be a hedge like, whoa, I don't even want to go there. I don't want those laws of harvest uh, to be true. But I'm not going to go over them. I'm just going to mention one of those laws of harvest, and it's this. You will always reap a multiplied increase of whatever you plant. You just plant one little tiny sin, and yet it grows into a spiritual lawn full of dandelions. And you think... Man, where did all those dandelions come from? Well, they came from your planting a little seed. It just grows, and it grows, and it grows. If you do not pluck up uh, those dandelions. And uh, when you sow sexual sins, you not only reap more sexual sins, because that's what you've planted, but you also reap more pain that goes along with that. How many people have lost a marriage and their children and their house, and they've faced incredible pain because of one indiscretion? It all starts by sowing individual dandelion seeds like David did. Now let's quickly look at some hedges that God kindly put in the way of David's sin. David just went ahead and crawled over them anyway, but uh, these were blessings from God. Uh, second part of verse 3, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uh, most commentators believe that servant knew what was going on in David's head. And he has to be careful how he words himself. But what he is doing is he's giving a caution to David and basically saying, hey, this woman's married. Uh, she's not anybody you should mess around with. But he was doing so diplomatically. The second caution that David should have heeded was that she was his friend's wife. This is no anonymous woman. Uh, he is about to hurt a friend. The fact that she was married to Uriah should have been a hedge. The third providential hedge that should have kept David from sinning was the presence of witnesses. Uh, in verse 4, he sends messengers to get her. Now, I'm surprised David even took the chances with sending messages to, to, to get her and to bring her to the, the, the palace. He was probably saying, oh, I'm just curious about this, uh, this woman. Uh, I want to get some information, you know, about her uh, husband, Uriah, you know, things. He could have had any number of justifications, but it is incredibly risky because if people found out what had happened, he could have been in incredible uh, trouble. 
And so there were three ways in which God was graciously putting the brakes on or putting hedges in the way of David's sin. And yet what David did is he climbed right over those hedges. And this brings us to Roman numeral three, the irrational nature of sin. This deals with a downhill slide into sin that Scripture calls the mystery of iniquity. And it really is a mystery. It's strange. When you consider the uh, the risk-reward ratio of sins, you know, the pleasure that the person gets versus all of the catastrophe that that sin is going to be producing, it makes no sense that people would sin. It really doesn't, and yet they do it all the time. They choose it anyway. The lust of the flesh is a spiritual issue. It's more than biology. Here's how Richard Exley explains it in the magazine Homemade. Lust is not the result of an overactive sex drive. It is not a biological phenomenon or the byproduct of our glands. If it were, then it could be satisfied with a sexual experience like a glass of water quenches thirst or a good meal satisfies appetite. But the more we attempt to appease our lust, the more demanding it becomes. There is simply not enough erotica in the world to satisfy lust's insatiable appetite. When we deny our lustful obsessions, we are not repressing a legitimate drive. We are putting to death an aberration. Lust is to the gift of sex what cancer is to a normal cell. Therefore we deny it, not in order to become sexless saints, but in order to be fully alive to God, which includes the full and uninhibited expression of our sexual being within the God-given context of marriage. And I think he hits the nail on the head in the way that lust works. Uh, Study Romans 1 sometime, and you'll see how once you give in to sin, this downward slide becomes worse and worse. Nothing but grace can reverse it. And what I want to do right now is I want to give you a quick summary of how Romans chapter 1 verses 21 through the end of the passage would apply to the subject that we're talking about. It applies to other sins as well, but how would it would apply here? And I'm going to stick pretty close to my notes because I want to make sure I don't skip anything here. In Romans 1 verse 21, it speaks to, therefore, sexuality that no longer glorifies God. Now, that implies sexuality can glorify God, right? Some people are such prudes, they don't even think that sexuality can glorify God, but it does. You cannot read the Song of Solomon or the book of Proverbs without realizing that that is the case. But we're talking here about those who are no longer glorifying God in their normal sexual relations. What's the very next thing that happens when you are not consciously glorifying God in your sexuality? Verse 21 says that such a person becomes unthankful for the gift that God has given to him, and instead, next phrase, he engages in vain imaginations, as the King James so aptly translates it. Now, perhaps the man is unthankful for how God has uh, endowed his wife, and so he imagines something different in his encounters with his wife. Those imaginations, by the way, do not need pornography to get them unhinged from reality. Paul says they can start purely in your head. But when you give in to vain imaginations, they make you more and more dissatisfied with reality, with what God has given to you. 
The people Paul describes in that chapter are imagining a wife that could not exist and would not if she could exist. Okay, and this leads to foolishness, foolish desires in the next verse, which if not crucified grow into idolatry in verse 23. And believe me, sexuality can become an idolatrous monster that demands absolute worship. Uh, And sexual idolatry is just pervasive in America. Then Paul says that their idolatrous pursuit of pleasure begins to consume them and they are given over to their desires. They can't get them out of their mind, in other words. It consumes them. And when that goes on long enough, verse 24 says, they can begin to find that things that used to be repulsive to them are now desirable. And when those filthy lusts are acted upon, they find that the black hole sucks them in deeper and they can only find satisfaction as there is more and more dishonor. And I understand that uh, most porn is unbelievably dishonoring to the wife. So that word dishonor there nails it on the head. Now this leads to a virtual worship of creation in verse 25, more and more unnatural sex in verse 26, until finally they find homosexuality to be erotic in verses 27 and following. Okay, so that's a summary of how this would apply to sexuality. You do your own study of Romans chapter 1, and you will see it is a downhill slope that you get into. Once you give into the sin, it is an irresistible downhill slide that can only be arrested by God's grace and your willingness to take on the whole armor of God and to fight against it. Uh, Steve Gallagher that I mentioned earlier is a man who perfectly illustrates uh, Romans chapter 1. He started with foolish imaginations, he said. That led to the use of soft porn As that began to wear out, that led to hard porn, and then it led him to engaging in things that many years earlier uh, he would have hated, he would have absolutely despised, and that eventually led him into homosexuality, something he also used to hate. Now, David wasn't there yet, but he had started that downhill slide with his polygamy, and then with his concubines. What's with that? And now these consuming desires for the illicit. Now that alone ought to scare us at even starting out on the downhill slope. In verse 4, we have a hint of how twisted the mind can become on issues of right and wrong. So then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house." It appears that David would not have gone through with this act if she had not been ritually cleansed from her ceremonial impurity. So he must have asked her. He wanted to be upright ceremonially, and he couldn't bring himself to violate that ceremonial law. It says he lay with her for she was cleansed. I mean, what a ridiculous reason. Okay, it's straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. And such rationalizations are common with those who are on this downhill slide. They think of themselves as being quite upright. They're quite willing and ready to be legalistic, you know, when it comes to the ceremonial laws, so to speak. There aren't ceremonial laws today, but you know what I mean. They know how to get outraged with the sins of others, as David got outraged with the sins of others in chapter 12, even though they're much lesser sins. (coughs) They are scrupulous in their righteous behavior in certain areas of their lives, all the while living 
in gross sin. And it's called self-deception, and it's all a part of this wonderful package that Satan tries to sell to us. Now, we will look more at verses 5 and following in the future, but we see in those verses that our flesh does not want to be, want sin to be uncovered. David desperately tries to cover his tracks by getting Uriah to come back and to sleep with his wife. When that doesn't work on the first night, he tries to get him drunk and get him to sleep with his wife. When that doesn't work, he killed, has uh, Uriah killed. Now, previously, David wouldn't have even dreamt of engaging in those kinds of sins, but when he first once gave in to the one sin, because of this inward desire to cover over sin, the other sins followed, just, just like dominoes, knocking down other dominoes. It's just irresistible. Point D says that sin always leads to deceit. Bernie Zilbergeld said, Adultery is almost certainly going to make a dent in trust and intimacy, and in many cases I've known it has destroyed them altogether. A woman who is conducting a secret affair has to become deliberately deceitful, like a CIA agent or a spy. She can't just come home and spill forth the events of her day. She's got to think, what can I safely talk about? What have I got to keep to myself? So even when the infidelity isn't discovered, it changes who you are. A person goes from being a candid, open human being to a secretive, hidden one. But covering up our sins itself is the height of foolishness. It's a part of the mystery of iniquity. Now, somehow we convince ourselves, you know, it's better for everybody involved if we don't expose this sin. I don't want to hurt other people. I mean, we got our rationalizations as to why we do not uh, confess our sins and take the consequences, but it is absolute stupidity when you look at it with a long-term uh, perspective. And yet it is so hard to expose ourselves, to confess our sins, to deal with those consequences. But we're not going to take the time to do it. But if you read Psalm 52, which is David's confession after chapter 12, he, it's quite clear, he realizes it would have been so much better to confess the sin right up front. So much better to do that. Cover-up always complicates. And the computer program, Covenant Eyes, uh, recognizes this dynamic and prevents you from even getting to that place. Okay, last point. Keep reminding yourself that we eventually get caught. If not by man, certainly by God. And I don't think those servants were stupid. They know how to count to nine. And when David gets this wife and she has a baby in a remarkably short amount of time, they're putting two and two together in their mind. And they're not, they're not stupid. I, I think that they knew what was going on. Joab for sure knew what was going on because he was part of this. And you might wonder, why would Joab go along with that? Oh, there were good reasons. Now he's got the goods on David. You try to get rid of me like you did in the past, I'll blackmail you. You're going to be exposed. We'll both go down in flaming fire, okay? So now David's even more complicated. He doesn't dare oppose Joab because if he does, he's going to be in trouble. He could say, yeah, Joab's guilty of murder. Uh-huh. Yeah, David's guilty of murder too. We're all in this together. So I think that was what was going on there. In Numbers 32, verse 23, God says, be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure of it. Make that something that's just uppermost in your consciousness. I'm not going to get away with this. Doesn't matter what the sin is. I am not going to get away with this. How would you like your sins plastered all over the front pages of every newspaper in town? 
Well, that happened to David, but it was worse than that. He got it plastered on the pages of Scripture where for thousands of years everybody knows about it. I mean, how embarrassing is that? But that's what God says. Be sure your sins will find you out. And it's a firm realization of that that's one of the hedges that prevents us from falling. And I hope by now you're seeing these points, if we implement them, are great ways of keeping us from the mess that David found himself in and that George MacDonald found himself in. While trusting God's promise in Jude that God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before His glory, let's at least be committed to these points. Never let down your guard. You always need grace. You always need Jesus. There but for the grace of God go I. Second, start confessing and working on your socially acceptable sins. Don't let any sins harden you. Third, start seriously handling your responsibilities. Fourth, if you're going to veg out, at least plan for it. Plan for it at least an hour ahead. <laughs> plan for it. Don't just, ah, I'm going to feel like vegging out now. Make it at least a half hour, an hour plan. But uh, it's usually better to never let any aspect of creation take dominion over you. Don't let things happen. Take dominion of creation. Fifth, turn boredom into slots of time that you can serve God. And if you don't know how to do that, ask me, man. I can give you all kinds of things that you can do. But really, I recommend to people, have a list. You know, we're too busy to get all of these things done. So you have a list. If I've got extra time, I go to this list of fun things, of non-fun things, ministry things, uh, chores around the house. Just have a long list of things. You ought never to be bored. I just cannot imagine being bored. But if you are, make a list. Okay? Sixth, start training your eyes to be disciplined. And just realize, this is the biggest gate that Satan uses to get into the city of our soul to conquer it. Seventh, don't be ruled by curiosity. Now, curiosity is a God-given motivation for taking dominion. I mean, curiosity is a wonderful gift if it's on a leash, so to speak. Okay? It's a hunt dog. Curiosity is a hunt dog. And you can say sickum, you know, on that possum, but if it's not disciplined, it's not going to come back when you tell it to come back. So curiosity has just got to be disciplined. Don't kill all curiosity, but certainly discipline it. Okay, eighth, remind yourself of God's guaranteed laws of harvest. That alone ought to scare the shoes off you, something off you. <laughs> uh, that alone ought to keep you from, from, from going into it. Tenth, thank God for the hedges that he has providentially erected. Try not to climb over those hedges. And then finally, don't ignore the fact that lust has the power to drag you into darkness and self-defeat, a deceit if you feed that monster. The more you feed the monster, the more it grows. So what you need to do is starve the monster. You need to crucify the monster. You need to mortify the flesh and mortify sin. If you don't know how to do that, talk to me or read the book. Better yet, read the book by John Owen, The Mortification of Sin. So, the bottom line is God can preserve you from stumbling. He can, but He requires you to take steps of faith. And if you've already fallen into something, you've made a mess out of your life, let me just end with the last law of harvest, and that is you can't do anything about last year's harvest. I mean, you can confess it. You can say, wow, that was a stupid thing to do, and uh, take precautions and notes for the future. But you can't do anything about last year's harvest. You can about this year's harvest. So start putting in place the things that can enable you to have a harvest where at the end of the year you can say, glory be to God, He has caused me to grow in righteousness. Haven't been perfect, 
but I have grown in righteousness in this coming year, and may God receive the glory. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word and the challenge that it gives uh, into our lives, and it is our desire to grow in you in every area of our lives. I pray that as a result of this sermon, we would not be uh, judging one another, instead we would be uh, understanding uh, the the issues of life and how difficult it is for men to struggle in this area, and uh, that we would pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be ready uh, to put our arms around their shoulders and pick them up when they've fallen, to be accountability partners, to be encouraging in each other's lives. But I pray, Father, as well, that we would recognize uh, the incredible dangers of the mystery of iniquity, and that we would... uh, uh, not just poo-poo the, the ideas of putting up hedges in our lives. Uh, may each one of us come away from this service being the stronger for having looked at the sin of, of David, not having to go through the same sin ourselves. We know that even falling into sin can make us stronger in you. And if uh, any of us have fallen into uh, sexual sins in the past, Father, may we, as a result of this sermon, uh, thank you for your grace, your forgiveness, and for the ability that we have to uh, move forward in life, not to be chained to the past, but to be uh, driven by the upward calling that we have in Christ Jesus. We know that being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is what should drive every aspect of our lives. So help us not uh, to be driven by the shame of our past, but to be driven by the glory and the beauty and the power of your grace and of the upward call that we have in Christ Jesus. Bless this, your congregation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.